The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, welcome to the Parker's Pensies podcast. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase. I've got a couple of master's degrees in theology. I'm working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my studies, I've had some really awesome conversations with amazing people. But unfortunately, I have not recorded them. So they're just up here. And so the goal of this podcast is to have conversations about fascinating ideas in, uh, with experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life to record them and then to share them with you so that you get to learn as I learn. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is going to be like talking through um, an Ant-Man or a Doctor Strange movie. We're going to be going at like what is fundamental. What It's it's awesome. I'm really excited about it. I have with me um, Dr. Ross Inman. He is a associate professor of philosophy at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's the editor of Philosophy at Christie, which is an amazing journal. And um, they're starting a new uh, MA program in philosophy of religion. So, I mean, this is right for you guys over there at Southeastern. So uh, go check that out. They also have a PhD program in philosophy of religion. And uh, don't tell Paul Gould that I plugged another uh, school's uh, MA program. But uh, before we jump in, uh, I just want to thank everyone who is a Patreon patron, uh, someone who supports this program. You guys are making this happen. This is awesome. You can see the quality of the videos getting better and better because of you guys. Um, I want to do this full time. I, I would continue doing my work with Athletes in Action at Northwestern, but um, I would love to be able to focus more and more time on the podcast to give you guys the content that you want. So if you have benefited from this program, this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. There are all sorts of goodies that you get over there, including uh, the book giveaway, where I give away books that I've received from publishers, from uh, my, my guests' uh, books, guests of the podcast. So Today, I'm going to be doing one. Uh, we're going to be giving away three books, and that's going to be a monthly thing. So just become a Patreon patron for at least $3 a month to enter uh, the book giveaway drawing. So without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Inman. <clears throat> Dr. Inman, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, man. Parker, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, as I told you off air, like this is a really um, highly requested episode. People want to hear about muriology, and so... Just real quick, for anyone who is, is not uh, familiar, muriology comes from the Greek word meros. I know this from my Greek time, which is sweet, but it means parts. And so we're going to talk about parts and holes and fundamentality and all sorts of amazing stuff. You can see the background is, is Ant-Man because that's how I think of this as I was reading <laughs> Dr. Inman's book. Um, as, as we get in here, uh, Dr. Inman, how did you get into philosophy at all? Yeah, great, great question, Parker. Um, thanks for having me on, man. It's great to be with you. Um, philosophy. How did I get into philosophy in the first place? Um, 
I guess sort of at, at the root, it was just a, a deep desire fleshed out to be rightly oriented to reality. I mean, that's kind of a simple way to put it, but, you know, um, it was just the, it was the f philosophical questions were naturally the questions I was asking that were keeping me up at night, uh, both uh, before I was a Christian and after I became a Christian, my junior year in high school. These were just the questions that it was kind of my intellectual center of gravity were these sorts of questions about, you know, reality, mind, values, uh, God, these sorts of things uh, after I became a Christian. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was more of just kind of dovetailing nicely with um, my own kind of uh, longings and my own uh, interests about uh, reality. And um, I figured out there was actually a discipline that I could uh, study that uh, and channel this uh, these deep desires and interests of mine into uh, a formal area of study. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm the more I'm exposed to philosophy as I continue to study it, the more I'm just honestly trying to be an aspiring generalist. Um, there's just so many fascinating topics in philosophy that uh, it's hard to, it's hard not to be drawn in and to see the interconnections between the different disciplines. So, yeah. Well, so you said you're, uh, you consider yourself a generalist. I, I mean, cause I have this book. Um, I bought it back when Paul Gould was at uh, Ted's and I saw him reading it. So I'm like, I'm going to read it. And then I immediately put it back down because it was a little bit too tough for me at the time. But now we're reading it in his class. So I, I've always thought of you as like a meriologist. But how do you consider yourself? Are you a, a philosopher generally who has different interests? Are you a, you know, fundamentally, are you a meriologist who has more philo uh, broad philosophical interests? How, how do you consider yourself? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, well, I should say I'm an aspiring generalist. I'm not always uh, successful in doing so. But uh, yeah, I mean, as you know, when you're sort of the norms of, uh, of graduate study, especially doctoral studies, you're sort of forced to uh, to travel through a very narrow topical gauntlet, right? Yeah. And um, it was a directed study, actually, with uh, J.P. Moreland uh, when I was doing my master's degree at Talbot in the metaphysics of material objects that um, – just initially piqued my interest, uh, and he had me reading uh, figures like uh, Edmund Husserl's Logical Investigations. Um, he had me reading Aristotle, uh, Aquinas, um, Brentano, these sorts of figures that I had never been exposed to, but uh, that were uh, incredibly rich. And I just, I just naturally gravitated towards um, metaphysics, one, but also, two, uh, just the structure of the material world and how uh, parts are related to their holes in general. And I realized that this was really a, this was a topic that uh, was quite ancient indeed. So um, I sort of gravitated towards that topic and naturally uh, just found that to be a world in itself, honestly. Um, and um, so that's what I decided to kind of uh, specialize in for my, my doctoral studies and that this book is really a kind of an outflow of uh, that doctoral dissertation uh, at Trinity College in Dublin under Peter Simons, who, who wrote sort of the Bible on Mariology uh, called Parts, A Study in Ontology. And um, I was thumbing through that book and I uh, was just really moved by the way that he approached the topic, how radically different it was from uh, a lot of contemporary literature that I was uh, reading at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... I've, I'll just say I've since broadened 
some in areas of interest since uh, since working on this project in particular, uh, mostly to um, broader aspects in philosophical theology, yeah. uh, as well as metaphysics. But um, but uh, yeah, so I if I had to sort of pick an area to hang out in, it'd be philosophical theology, metaphysics, and even just the uh, the application to uh, various Christian doctrines too, with respect yeah. to metaphysics. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, I got to imagine that being the editor of uh, Philosophy of Christie is, is pretty cool because uh, you don't have to go out and find things anymore. People are sending them to you. And so how do you well, what, what's uh, the what's the most current up to date um, arguments? Well, they're coming in daily, you know, to, to you. I think that's pretty awesome that like those kind of things um, are fantastic. Having a podcast every now and then people will be like, hey, can I come on? Here's my paper or let me send you my book. And it's like, dude, this is. Somehow I reversed the polarity, and now it's coming my way, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Um, you your book, I mean, it's right in the title, a Neo Aristotelian Muriology. Um, as we're as we're kind of wading in here, um, what are some other options of Muriology? And actually, before that, like what what is Muriology? Yeah, good. Uh, well, Muriology, um, I'd say probably specifically it's just the formal study of the logic of parts and wholes and um as a sort of formal discipline it probably traces back to i don't know at least in the anglo-speaking world 1940 with uh, leonard and goodwin's book uh the calculus of individuals hmm. which um was uh, an attempt to employ a formal theory of parts and wholes uh, to uh, replace set theory. So this was supposed to be a nominalistic substitute for uh, set theory, uh, what um, what Leonard and Goodman were up to. And so it was just, uh, it was a logic governed by various axioms of various degrees of strength. And so now you have um, what's often called uh, classical extensional muriology or formal muriology. Um, that picks out a particular logic of parts and wholes uh, with various axioms and, uh, like I said, of various degrees of strength. Um, if you've ever heard of unrestricted mirological composition, that is one of the axioms of classical uh, of classical extensional mirology. So uh, I'd say, in the most most specifically, Parker, it picks out it picks out just a particular formal theory of parts and wholes. But but I guess more broadly, just the study of parts and wholes in general whether like a formal logic of parts and wholes, um, really, like I said, it goes back um, at, at least to the time of Plato. Um, yeah. So you have, you have Verity Hart has a wonderful book called Plato on parts and wholes. Uh, that's with Oxford University Press um, and uh, does, doing an, an amazing job of just tracing out s some of these myriological themes in, uh, in Plato's own work, as well as in Aristotle's work. Yeah. So um this really goes back quite a quite a ways, uh, and some of the richest uh, insights in Muriology uh, do come in the medieval period as well. Um, and I'll just point your listeners, if they want to read up further on this, um, Andrew Arleg has a wonderful uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy uh, entry called Medieval Muriology. Mm. Um, and as well as um, Robert Pazenow's book, Metaphysical Themes, has several chapters in there on um, how many of the medievals thought about parts and wholes. And there was just quite a bit of diversity and variation, but they were thinking about these issues as, yeah. as a good, uh, many of them good Aristotelians. So, um, 
Yeah, and and of course, how the Aristotelian tradition uh, impacted uh, people like um, uh, Husserl and Brentano and these these thinkers as well. Um, so, yeah, there's just there's a lot there, but I would say probably most specifically it refers to a formal theory of parts and wholes, but more generally just to you know how do material composite objects uh, get composed and what are the various types of parts they have and so on and and so so forth. Yeah, so uh, I think that that last part is really interesting. Um, is muriology limited to um, ma material objects? Because there's this problem of the one and many, and depending on where you're at um, in different, even apologetic circles, that's a, a, an emphasis. Uh, an emphasis. Um, and so I was confused on this, um, but someone said that it's it's restricted to uh, material objects. Is, is that right? It just depends on your view, honestly. Okay. Um, you know, the parthood relation so something's being a part of another thing. It just depends if it's what philosophers call topic neutral or category neutral, if it can obtain between um, entities of any ontological category, uh, abstract, concrete, um, um, material, immaterial. Um, so David Lewis in his book, Parts of Classes, he thinks it's a topic neutral relation where he says like, for example, um, he just says hypothetically, you know, God's foreknow uh, God's um, God's uh, f beliefs would be a part of His foreknowledge or something like that. And you can you can talk about parts and parthood and with respect to uh, immaterial or non-material uh, awesome. things as well. Um, so the powers of an angelic being's soul would be parts of that angelic being in some sense. If it's um, you know, if it's if it's um, powers or parts, that sort of thing. So okay. um, it, it just depends on um, on the view. But mostly, I would say it is accurate to say it is it is restricted in most contemporary uh, discussions on the matter to um, spatial temporal things. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so I, I was talking... I love this topic. I love muriology in general, but I was talking with uh, some people at my jujitsu gym because they were asking me about the podcast. What's next? And I said, we're talking about muriology and no, not mariology, but muriology. <laughs> and and uh, they were like, yeah, you know, that's heady. Their eyes kind of glazed over. I'm like, look, this is actually really interesting because like, are you, uh, are you, are your parts more fundamental or prior to, to you or are you more prior to your parts? And if your hand gets cut off, is that your hand anymore? What about you get a prosthetic? And we had an amazing conversation after jujitsu uh, about muriology. So it's a really fascinating, like really fun um, topic. Your book is fantastic. And I wish we could talk about everything, but it would take wait, it would take a week to do it. So today we're going to be focusing on um, fundamental muriology. And um, hopefully we get into like your particular take of, of uh, neo-aristotelianism um yeah. but what like what is fundamentality when we when we talk about a fundamental muriology uh yeah so i would say probably the the label fundamental muriology was was first coined in the contemporary literature um i believe in 2010 if i'm not mistaken this is when jonathan schaffer's article in the, the Philosoph uh, Philosophical Review, uh, Monism, Priority of the Whole, uh, came out. And um, really on the heels of a resurgence in thinking about grounding, metaphysical grounding, uh, this idea of uh, non-causal 
explanatory relations between uh, entities. Um, let's, that's that's Schaffer's uh, understanding of, of grounding. But uh, grounding is really kind of, um, gosh, it's just uh, probably in the last 11, 12 years has just exploded as a discipline um, or as an area of inquiry. And so uh, when we're talking about grounding, one thing's being grounded in another or one thing's being more fundamental than another or one thing's being more derivative or derivative on another, um, these all have to do with a type of metaphysical ordering or structuring relation between things. In this case, between entities. This is how Schaffer um, understands grounding. Not everybody understands grounding in a way that relates entities. Some say it relates facts or propositions or other sorts of things. So you can imagine there's just there's just um, a lot in the area of, of what is grounding, what are its relata, uh, or what it's is its relata. Um, so. Uh, yeah, so it gets us at least into the into the mindset of okay, are some things more fundamental metaphysically speaking than uh, than other things? So are some things ontologically prior uh, and posterior to other things? And you know, this is a question that really I would say why we find it why we find it uh being asked today is i think it's also on the back of a resurgence in neo-aristotelianism as well so um you know much of contemporary metaphysics has been done within the shadow of, of a sort of neo-humian uh ontology in various ways of causation of um laws of modality of properties um and so on and so forth and, and material objects uh, also so the idea of ontological priority or ontological posteriority is a really a thick metaphysical notion that mm. um, I think is really uh, part and parcel of a resurgence of taking sort of thick conceptions of metaphysics seriously again. And largely that's that's um, come on the heels of a, of a resurgence of neo-Aristotelianism, not exclusively, I should say, mm. but um, but by and large, um, Schaffer's own uh his own proposal in that essay, uh, Monism Prior to the Whole, um, is using and employing very, uh, very explicitly some some thick Aristotelian concepts about subs, uh, substance, fundamentality, grounding, ontological dependence. Um, so when we talk about fundamental mariology, we're really talking about the intersection between um, parts and wholes and uh, priority, metaphysical priority, in uh, metaphysical fundamentality. So are holes, composite holes, things that have parts, are they ontologically or metaphysically prior to their parts and thus more fundamental than their parts? Or are parts ontologically or metaphysically prior to their holes and thus more fundamental than their holes, right? So it's really the intersection of parts and holes, the study of parts and holes on the one hand, and then the intersection of uh, metaphysical priority, uh, grounding, our holes grounded in their parts, or vice versa, which again is a very ancient. It's a very ancient question, but um, I think uh, I think the the whole area of inquiry has come back on the scene uh, in a really fascinating way because it does, as you say, it raises issues about not only the muriological or part whole ordering of physical reality, but also the metaphysical ordering. Um, it, it, it really tells us something about whether reality is hierarchically ordered, metaphysically speaking, mm -hmm. if whether all the fundamental substances 
uh, which we'll, we'll get to no doubt um, about what that means, but are really small and at the sort of bottom, bottom myriological level, right? Yeah. At the level of what Shepard calls the atoms or, or uh, is there only one substance, namely the cosmos and everything else is, uh, is a derivative or dependent part of it. So um, I can say more about how Shaffer sets things up, but is there anything you want to, you want to yeah, I have like random questions too that I just want to toss out. Like um, there's, there's this uh, conversation about myriological simples and yeah. it seems, it seems like just from the conversation, a lot of people just kind of think that's super duper speculative, um, speculative, but uh, whatever, like that's, that's kind of the nature of the podcast. Do you think that there's such, can you explain what a myriological simple is? And then do you think there are any? Yeah. Um, so myriological simple is just an object um, that lacks proper parts. Um, so it itself does not have, uh, proper parts. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, so some, some philosophers think this is, um, there's some think actually there's good empirical reasons for thinking that I should say, I should say this, um, there aren't simples mm -hmm. that reality is sort of infinitely divisible. Uh, myriologically speaking. So, so every object on this view has proper parts. So there's the reality of what uh, some have called infinite myriological descent. So it's sort of uh, parts upon parts, and there's really no bottom uh, myriological level, no, no simples, right? Is that, is that gunk? Is that David Lewis's gunk? It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, I guess I should say um, some philosophers think, um, Gunk is at least metaphysically possible. Um, so if it's at least metaphysically possible, um, we should at least allow for um, just that, the metaphysical possibility that there are no symbols, mm -hmm. that uh, reality uh, descends in infinitely downward um, with respect to uh, every object has, has itself proper parts. So um, yeah, it just depends on, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I tend to think that there is a fundamental, if you had to press me on this, a yeah. fundamental myriological level. But um, I don't know how one would argue very strongly for that philosophically or metaphysically, um, because I do think it is possible for, metaphysically possible, that is, for there to be uh, gunky worlds. So worlds where there are no symbols. So I want to say partly it might just be an empirical question in part, but also... Um, I don't think we should rule out um, the possibility of gunky worlds uh, as well. Whether which world we live in, whether we live in a gunky world or a world where there are, you know, simples, um, maybe that's an empirical question uh, yeah. to, that can decide that. But um, well, that that is one thing that comes out in your book that uh, when you talk about uh, real definitions, and you do have a, a strong place for uh, the empirical in your book, which is great, which is. A little bit different than what I'm used to because I'm used to like strict armchair stuff. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, could could someone run some kind of argument about infinite regress and like if if the if we got turtles all the way down, famous yeah. expression, but we would never get to the grounded things that we have today because it. I, I don't know. Maybe are there any infinite regress type arguments there? Well, there are for grounding. So, so the question of. Um, 
so perhaps you're familiar with an epistemology about epistemic justification, the structure of justification, the view known as foundationalism, mm -hmm. right? There have to be some beliefs that are justified, but that are not inferentially justified. So they sort of constitute the foundation of one's noetic structure. Mm -hmm. And some have argued for a metaphysical foundationalism with respect to grounding. So there has to be some bottom metaphysical fundamental level. Um, or else, as Schaffer puts it, being would be infinitely deferred, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm very sympathetic to those, and I actually think there are good theistic considerations as to um, God's being absolutely fundamental and himself being the ultimate terminus of grounding relations or metaphysical dependence relations. So um, I think there are theistic reasons to to hold to a kind of metaphysical foundationalism or what I call in the book uh, the well-groundedness of so the well-foundedness of grounding right mm -hmm. um, that grounding is not uh, does not have infinite they're not infinite chains of grounding um, so yeah so that 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 is a discussion with respect to uh, with respect to uh, grounding itself so um, maybe I should say something about how Schaffer sets up kind of some of these options here yeah, so please. So fundamental Mariology, um, Schaffer distinguishes between two different views. One would be what he calls uh, priority pluralism, and the other is priority monism. So priority pluralism, uh, actually I should say they're both defined in terms of um, the maximal Mariological whole, so which would be basically the sum of all physical concrete objects. Call that the cosmos, right? It's sort of the largest composite, physical composite that's concrete. Um, in existence. That's what Schaeffer calls the cosmos, right? Um, and so priority pluralism says um, the, the proper parts or some subset of the proper parts of the cosmos are themselves fundamental. So the parts are prior to that one cosmic whole. On the other hand, priority monism is the view that no, the cosmos as the sort of maximal compositional object is itself prior to all of its many, many proper parts. So all, everything other than the cosmos, that is all of its proper parts, all of its physical concrete proper parts are derivative. They're not fundamental. They're not substances. So on that view, there's only one fundamental substance. And here substance really is supposed to be tracking fundamentality. So the substances are the fundamental things, the things that are not grounded in other things. So they have a sort of ungrounded character to them. They are the terminus of grounding relations, the substances are, and they're supposed to do do the grounding. They themselves are not uh, grounded. So so on Schaffer's view, there's really only one fundamental substance um, and all grounding relations terminate in it. And it's the cosmos. It's the one maximal uh, whole. And on priority pluralism, one particular version, which he spends most of his time interacting with, is priority pluralism. And that's the view that, excuse me, priority microphysicalism. And that's the view that uh, the things that are, um, the parts of the cosmos that are that are prior uh, to, to all other things that are fundamental and where the substances reside, those are the little uh, physical bits of reality, whatever they might be, right? So just take that as a placeholder, whether those are like fields or strings or whatever. Uh, they're fundamental, right? The substances are down there. 
um, and everything else built up out of those microphysical uh, bits of reality are derivative. They're not substances. So I don't know if you noticed, but there's an assumption in both of these views. And I'd say priority microphysicalism is probably the, the predominant yeah. view that really sets the stage for many discussions in the metaphysics of material objects, for philosophy of mind even. Um, and uh, Schaffer's is, is quite unique and new, but it's it hasn't really gotten the traction as much nearly, not even close really, I should say, as my priority microphysicalism. But both of these views share in common this idea that no substance has another fundamental substance as a proper part. Mm -hmm. um, so if the one cosmic whole is, the, is, the, is a substance, then all of its parts um, are not substances. And likewise, if, if the little microphysical bits of reality are substances, then everything that they compose at a higher mereological level, they're not substances either, including the cosmos. But that also means that, that includes intermediate, what I call intermediate objects like us, right. like living organisms, uh, trees, people, depending on your view of, of a person. Um, so, uh, yeah, but both of these views really render, I should say, all intermediate objects, things that are like ordinary medium-sized composite objects like trees and living organisms, uh, they render them non-substantial, right? They're not substances. So on Schaffer's priority monism, there's only one substance. All of the parts of the cosmic whole are not substances, including all living organisms, including um, being like us. Um, and then likewise, on the other, on the other end, um, everything built up out of the fundamental substances at the microphysical level are not substances. So I guess why, what got me thinking about this was, wow, on both of these views, both the priority microphysicalist view and the priority monistic view, uh, really, Aristotle, which was, if you think about it, one of the main, um, his, his sort of understanding of, of primary substances was, was such an important player in the history of metaphysics that um, there's really no room for Aristotle here, right? So, um, and, you know, I always want to make room for Aristotle. My That's boy. good. So, you know, so I thought, you know, maybe there's something we can say here. And, and to be honest, it really stemmed from the fact that... Um, more of the there seem to be deep problems with saying that no intermediate objects that are composites are are fundamental and so that's what got me initially thinking about these sorts of issues yeah okay uh dr Min, are you familiar with phloem the children's toy thing it's kind of like play-doh no okay it's it's i think this is phloem uh it's a bunch of little small like squishy bbs and you foam you put them together and to make objects and stuff like that. And so yeah. I, I think for, for those listening, like that's priority microphysicalism. You have these little BBs, whatever they are, strings, and you build up the physical reality with those things. Um, but it seems, I'm wondering um, if priority monism and priority microphysicalism, would both of those views deny uh, a gunky uh, universe, a gunky cosmos? Because it seems like priority microphysicalism the, the fundamental things are substances and substances can't be made out of other substances. I don't know. How do, how do you, how do we think about that? Yeah. Um, well, if I remember in right in the third chapter, um, I think I lay out, I lay out models that are consistent with gunky and non-gunky myriologies mm -hmm. um, and, and how that might work. 
Um, so if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, I think there's a there's room to make both of those views work. Hmm. Um, is it separable in inseparable parts? Is that is that doing work there? No, no, um, no. It would be. Um, yeah, no. So I would just I would just point your readers to the third chapter yeah. where I where I'm laying out the views and saying there are gunky versions of okay. priority microphysicalism where there's really no bottom fundamental muriological level. There are no atoms, as it's called in uh, in muriology, just simples. Yeah. Um, but in fact, uh, every object itself has proper parts, but. Um, that would entail that there's no uh, fundamental metaphysical level yeah. for for a, a gunky priority microphysicalism. It would just be grounding relations, just because if the if all holes are grounded in their parts, and there's no and there's no fundamental metaphysical level, then uh, yeah, it just continues onward. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's. I think that's really helpful because we usually think if we're talking apologetics and stuff from the more popular level, we think the BBs. That's like the the physicalists, and so microphysicalists have to have these one fundamental BBs, and that's everything. Well, not necessarily. Like you can have a gunky where everything is turtles all the way down, and it's more complex um, than we might initially think. Um, but it's really super fascinating, super interesting. So we have priority monism, priority yeah. microphysicalism, and then. Uh, Yours is a priority macrophysicalism, right? Actually, no. So, um, so um, that is one possible view. So you could say, um, in contrast to priority monism, um, the cosmos is not a substance. Whatever else it might be, it might be a, a plurality. So when I use the word the cosmos, it's a plural referring term, and it doesn't refer to one thing at all. It just refers to uh, a plurality. So there's not even composition taking place. That's one view. You could say it's also, it's a, it's a whole, but it's not a substance. Maybe it's an aggregate or something like that. Okay. that itself is dependent on its many proper parts. But in contrast to priority monism, the priority macrophysicalist will say, no, there are macrophysical, ordinary, medium-sized composites that are that are substances in fact on that view all macrophysical medium-sized objects are substances now that's not oh. my view so okay, okay. Um, my view uh, my view is called substantial priority and what it does is it tries to it tries to move the discussion away from um the cosmos sort of defining these particular views in terms of the cosmos uh, as Schaffer does because uh, you might not think there is such a thing as the cosmos as the sort of maximal muriological sum mm -hmm. um, so maybe it's not a good idea to basically define the possible views on the table in terms of something that not everybody really might you know countenance in their ontology so yeah. I say probably better to uh, unpack the various views in terms of categories. So for substances, um, for substantial holes, holes, composite holes that are themselves substances, they're going to be ontologically prior to their parts. So, um, so if a, if, a, if a substance has proper parts, if it's not simple, right, it's going to be metaphysically prior to its proper parts. All of its proper parts are going to be grounded in it. In it. They're going to be inseparable parts, as I say. 
Uh, they're going to be parts that whose natures and existence is tied to that hole in a very strong way. And I call these grounding holes in the book. So these are these are composite holes, substances, that is. So we're in the category, the ontological category of substance. There's a composite holes that have a particular grounding structure to them. If they have parts, they, they ground their parts. Their parts don't ground them. Uh, but when you move to the ontological category of aggregate, these are both categories of objects, the more general category of objects on my view. So there are two types of objects, right? Substance and aggregates. So if it's an aggregate, and I would include most artifacts in this category, intentional objects, um, it's, it's, it exhibits the exact um, opposite grounding structure. Yeah. So uh, aggregates, like a pool table, um, is composed of parts, right? So you have aggregates in your ontology, right? So you're not an eliminativist about, about aggregates or, or, or artifacts. They just have a very different grounding structure. Um, so they're holes, but they're wholly grounded in um, each of their proper parts. So their natures and existence are, are strongly wedded to uh, their proper parts. So these are grounded holes. That's what I refer to these as. So um, so I say better to, to situate the question of fundamental muriology in terms of the live views on the table in terms of the ontological category of the objects in question, rather than, okay, do you think the cosmos is a substance and everything else is 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 a non-substance or an aggregate, or do you think, you know, the little microphysical bits of the substances and everything built out of those are aggregates? Um, because that builds in a lot that uh, many people might not agree with those assumptions in the first place. So uh, on my view, substantial priority is simply this. Um, there are intermediate substances. Yeah. So there are ordinary medium-sized substances. No, notice that doesn't say that all ordinary medium-sized composite objects are substances, yeah. right? Um, so pool tables, right? Um, uh, pool tables are not substances on my view, but they exist. Mm -hmm. but, and they're composite. So they have... They have compositional structure. They've got real parts, proper parts, uh, the legs, the felt, you know, uh, of, of the pool table. Those are all proper parts of the pool table, but tables are not substances on my view. So you have um, you have room for saying some intermediates are substances. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply and are grounding holes, yeah. and some intermediates are not. They are uh, grounded holes. So what that does entail, though, is that the cosmos is not a substance. Yeah. Whatever yeah. else it might be, could be an aggregate, or it could just be a plurality where there's really no composition taking place there at all, depending on which way you want to go there. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? So that's kind of how my view tries to yeah. do a little well, bit of both. So I guess I was I thought that um, that substance priority was like a subset of priority macrophysicalism, but priority macrophysicalism would say that the pool table itself is a substance, right? Yes. So okay. 
So priority macrophysicalism, yeah, says all macrophysical composites or all ordinary sort of medium-sized composite objects are ontologically prior to their parts. Yeah, yeah. And that's where basically when you ask the question, well, where do the substances reside? And for priority monism, it's going to be exclusively at the topmost mirrorological level, right? Yeah. yeah. For priority macrophysicalism, it's going to be this exclusively at the macrophysical level, at the intermediate level. And then for the priority microphysicalist, they say exclusively the substances reside at the bottom yeah. uh, most mirrorological level. And I guess what I want to do is to push back against the assumption that the substances, that the, the things that are ontologically or metaphysically fundamental are going to exhibit sort of that sort of uniformity where they're all going to reside at the exact same mereological level. And, yeah. and I want to say there's a real ontological difference between say an artifact an aggregate, like a pool table and a living organism. So I want to recognize that Aristotelian distinction, but I don't want to reduce away uh, non-living or even non-conscious composite objects um, as say the eliminativist does. So that's where, that's where kind of substantial priorities is rather minimal in the sense that at least there are some intermediate substances. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super helpful. And I think the, uh, now that you've helped me think through the priority macrophysicalism, it's, it, yeah, it's a little bit weird to think that like just everything in the manifest image that we see is a substance. Like, why would we think that? Uh, I, I like yours because you get to put substances all over the place. Um, I want, Oh, actually before we, going to this next one but uh you, you have two categories uh for ontology you have substances and aggregates are what about heaps like where, where do we put heaps are heaps just a subset of an, an aggregate yeah i mean you you could say one of one of two things i think about heaps you could say they're not composite objects at all okay so you could just say there are there are pluralities so when you ask are heaps composite objects or are they just assemblages of 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 various grains of sand, right? Is that a many or a one, right? And there's a it's a real live question as to whether it's a one at all, or it's just a group. Um, it's a group of grains, right? So if you think it's it's one thing, right? Um, then you'll say no, it's a composite object. It's it's an aggregate. But as Aristotle pointed out, unity is a degreed notion, right? Something can be more or less unified. And the intuition I'm trying to really tap into, Parker, is aggregates are unified, right? Mm -hmm. But not not nearly as unified as the substances are. So yeah. I guess the question for heaps would be, um, what reason would there be to posit compositional structure in them uh, to say that they are one thing uh, at all or just uh, groups of many things, right? Yeah. So... Um, yeah, that it would just be which which way you, you which way you preferred, and whether or not there were reasons for saying no. There's there's we quantify over one thing when we talk about heaps. Um, they seem to have. It's, um, if I had to sort of, if you had to press me, I would say something more along the lines of heaps would be pluralities. Um, I don't wouldn't put them in the category of aggregates, um, uh, just because the intuition that they lack they lack even the unity of an aggregate on my view. Yeah. Um, aggregates are at least 
unified to some degree or other, like a pool table. And okay. maybe it's exhibiting some functional, uh, the parts are exhibiting some function with respect to the whole, like an automobile or a pool table. These are aggregates on my view, but the parts are, are much more organized with respect to the whole than yeah. say a heat, right? They're just okay. sitting, those grains are just sitting there and they're not really yeah. ordered to, to, to anything higher than it. I, so, but I mean, I'm open. You could convince yeah. Parker to be a, to be a realist <laughs> about heaps and say that, right. they're, the, you know, they're composite objects. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with with sand because I think this might help us uh, as we're thinking through substances and aggregates. So if you take a heap of sand, uh, which could go either way, and you form it into a sand castle, is that now an aggregate? Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, so if you form heaps of sand into uh, a sand castle, um. I would say it probably has more, it's more plausible to consider it potentially as, as an okay. aggregate. Um, but remember the only, the existence and identity conditions for aggregates, at least I'll just say these are necessary existence and identity conditions for aggregates is that they exhibit a certain type of grounding structure. So um, aggregates are composite objects, all of whose parts um, are um, grounded. Yeah. Right. So um, it is radically its its existence and nature is radically tied to the whole. So okay. um, I I don't. So for example, if you went and removed one of those grains of sand, yeah. Um, is um, does that sandcastle cease to exist? <laughs> and so, yeah. if you think it does then you might think sandcastles are aggregates okay because they're radically fragile in that sense so um all of the parts of an aggregate um ground that aggregate yeah and so if you remove a part of an aggregate this is um just the view known as muriological essentialism mm -hmm. um they're just incredibly metaphysically fragile things so but many of us will think no the sandcastle doesn't it, it doesn't we can talk about the sandcastle, but um, they're really just, um, you know, grains arranged in a particular shape. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, again, I'm open. I'm open there to be convinced that there's no, there's one composite thing there as well. So. Yeah. Well, I want to. Okay, I want to uh, up the ante just a little bit. What if what if um, lightning then strikes that sandcastle and, you know, turn, turns it into uh, glass? Um, so now it's it seems like it's more radically unified. Um, geez, is there a better case for that? It, it, let's say it's wholly made out of glass now. Is that an ordered aggregate, you think? Um, so it's more unified with respect to the relations each of those, each of its parts stand to one another. So I do want to say that okay. there's, there's greater spatial contiguity, right, between the parts of that thing. It just honestly depends on what, whether you think spatial contiguity is sufficient for uh, composition yeah. so sure. this gets to the question of what what are the conditions under which something gets composed right you're familiar yeah. maybe this is the the special composition question so um and there are different there are different answers but i think one uh one answer that's been i think aptly dismissed is spatial con contiguity is necessary and sufficient for composition to uh, to occur um that can't be all that's 
all that's going on with respect to getting a new composed object. There's got to be more than that because you and I can become spatially contiguous in a sense. And I can <laughs> put my arm and your, my hand on your shoulder and yeah. there would be contact, right? Um, there would be spatial, some degree of spatial contiguity, but we wouldn't thereby compose a, a further object we wouldn't become at least i don't think so yeah. uh, you know some you know so anyways yeah um so yeah that that gets into larger questions about uh the special composition question but i mean i should say i'm i'm happy to be ra rather permissive about aggregates so it's not as if i'm um you know i'm not willing to let in a lot in my ontology with respect to aggregates but I think it's it's the substances that are really in sort of true Aristotelian fashion. They're the kind of elite beings in mm -hmm. one's ontology, and um, so the substances are going to be the ones that um, I'm kind of more like, okay, let's what what makes something a substance? Um, why why are sub why do substances exhibit the grounding structure they do right yeah. what makes them different from aggregates that sort of thing yeah. and I'll just say they're going to be vastly fewer substances than one's ontology but I'm I'm not as permissive as a Schaffer would be okay about the non fundamental things um, but I, I'm I should say more concerned with um, the, the the fundamental stuff right yeah yeah. yeah. Well, that, okay, so that brings us right to um, Schaffer. I think it's Schaffer's uh, tilling constraint, um, and that yeah. is um, so. So fundamentally, for you, uh, for for neo Aristotelians of your flavor, um, fun there the fundamental entities are substances, right? Yeah. Okay, and then there's this tilling constraint that there are no gaps or overlaps uh, of the fundamental entities. So we have uh, we have substances that are they're fundamental all throughout the um, all throughout the the universe, like they're everywhere, but they don't overlap with each other, and there's no gaps. So like perfectly, they they catch everything. Um, I think that's awesome. That's so cool to think about. It's yeah. really, it's easy to think about if you're a priority microphysicalist because you just got all these BBs fitting together. Um, yeah. It's a little bit different to think about with substances. It's, I, I mean, I, I agree with you, but it's it's really weird to think about because we're substances. And then if there are myriological symbols, and that's a substance, um, together, all of us, uh, there are no overlaps or gaps between us. That's yeah. yeah, no, it is. And, and so, um, yeah, so the idea of there being no gaps and no myriological overlaps between the fundamental things um, really gets to several intuitions. One is that the substances are going to provide the exhaustive grounding base for everything else. So yeah. this is the no gaps idea that the substances should serve as it, they should serve to ground and not leave out anything, right? Yeah. They, so all for anything that's derivative or not fundamental, it's going to ultimately trace its existence or its nature back to something that's fundamental. So, um, there's no sort of metaphysical danglers, right? Um, yeah. And so that's one thing. And then the 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 no parthood uh, constraint or the no mirological overlap constraint. I call it no fundamental parthood. It's really supposed to be getting at this idea that substances are not only 
metaphysically complete, but they're minimally complete in the sense that um, to be truly fundamental is that something uh, something doesn't have any subplurality or any of its parts um, aren't fundamental. So if, yeah. if composition is like a building relation, right? You get a composed object by way of the composition relation when you build up a composed object from its parts, right? There's an intuition, at least uh, that I find plausible, that if once that process has take, taken place, some of the substances remain, right, mm -hmm. uh, as parts, then the whole is in some way still derivative on that yeah. substantial part. And... And so the intuition, again, this is very Aristotelian, and Schaffer is really, he gives some arguments for this, but um, uh, this is really a, a deep, deeply entrenched assumption in at least Aristotelian Mariology that you find in many of the medievals as well, mm -hmm. um, that what it is to be fundamental or a basic metaphysical entity means that you're not going to have any basic metaphysical entities that make you up. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, those are kind of the rules of the game, at least within this traditional Aristotelian framework. Now, if you jettison this, that th those constraints, things get a lot easier. Mm. They really do. So, um, so, but you know, somebody who's playing by the rules of fundamental Mariology is just going to say, "Okay, I'll I'll play by these rules," uh, insofar as these constraints are reasonable and intuitive. So, on my view, yeah, you you have to say that. I do agree with you, Parker, that on the priority microphysicalist view, much easier to see how the little microphysical bits of reality can serve as the exhaustive grounding base for everything else, right? Yeah. Not as easy as well as for the cosmos, to be honest. Yeah. So it's the maximal whole um, leaves nothing out, right? All of its proper parts are included among its – all other things are included among its proper parts, all other concrete physical things. But for a kind of a mixed view like mine, you have to give a kind of disjointed account that says something like, um, yeah, uh, depending on what type of, of object we're talking about here, um, if we're talking about an aggregate, well, then uh, it's going to be totally grounded in, um, I think, quite plausibly in some set of substances, uh, perhaps at the microphysical level. Yeah. Um, so... My view would be something like this for, for all the micro. So the microphysical base provides a grounding base for all other composed objects other than substances. Yeah. And so there are going to be some composite objects that defy uh, being grounded in the microphysical base. And those are principally, and I would say chiefly living organisms. Um, yeah. Uh, to follow Aristotle there, um, and I actually think persons as well, on my view. So, um, so if if all of the, I guess this is the way I put it, is if all of the microphysical things can serve as the exhaustive grounding base, well then, so can all of the microphysical things save uh, save the intermediate substances. So yeah. Uh, yeah. you've got some intermediates that are kind of hanging out in the intermediate level. They're not, so this would be a problem if you went for the priority macrophysicalist view where all the substances um, were at the macrophysical level. But yeah. I want to at least leave room for a mixed view that says 
uh, yeah, the microphysical base is entirely sufficient to ground all aggregates and the existence and nature of aggregates, but not all intermediate objects per se. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it does get trickier and you got to say some really weird things. Um, this is just some of the traditional worries with an Aristotelian muriology and the view that, you know, substances can have other substances as proper right. parts. You got to say some wild things. And as you imagine doing some reading in this area, uh, in muriological metaphysics, there are some wild views. And, and it seems like everyone's got to say something wild, right? It is. Absolutely. And it's kind of like, who can say, who can, <laughs> who can get away with saying the least amount of weird, wild things and have, have a view that, that has uh, powerful explanatory power. Yeah. Um, or broad explanatory reach. And I guess I would say my own methodological constraints, Parker, is coming into this, and this is, um, I think this is chapter seven of the book about getting personal and, yeah. and looking at personal ontology. I wanna come in to this discussion. I mean, we all come into this discussion with antecedent commitments, philosophical commitments, theological commitments about persons, right? About um, agency, about consciousness, right? Um, I think that I'm a composite object. Um, I think that I have to some degree or other, I have various non-redundant causal powers. So there are activities that I can engage in as a substance that cannot be exhaustively explained in terms of the activities of my proper parts. So there are things that I can do. There are non-redundant causal powers that I have that cannot be solely attributed to my proper parts in their in, in their joint activity even. So like thinking, and I would argue libertarian agency. Um, mm -hmm. So if you come into this discussion with antecedent commitments about agency, or at least certain forms of agency that require uh, irreducible or fundamental causal powers, and even irreducible or fundamental phenomenal conscious properties, yeah. mental properties, well, then um, I actually think there's 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 already antecedent reasons for saying, well, there's got to be some substances that are intermediate. Yeah. Um, there got to be some composites that are at a lower level than the cosmos, but that are a higher level than the, the little microphysical bits that are actually bringing about non-redundant causal effects in the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to say you and I are, are like that. Yeah. yeah, it's like looking like it's in the mirror. Go check it out. You know, like it, it. You have to be able to capture the thing that's doing the thinking when you're thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you think thought and just mental activity in general is, it's the sort of thing that, which many agree, is the sort of thing that can't be a joint activity. Mm. Right? There's this sort of simplicity intuition that many people have about consciousness and even just mental activity in general. You don't just get conscious thought on the cheap, metaphysically speaking. You need a robust, you need a robust ontology where you've got some highly unified, uh, I would argue, fundamental beings that are the bearers of conscious thought and uh, thinking. So, as well as agency. So, uh, if you can't get conscious thought unless you have a bearer of conscious thought that is extremely unified. This gets into issues regarding the unity of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I really, I think you need an ontology to support what you want to say about matters in the metaphysics of free will and mind. Sure. That um, this is where we're going to have to sort of think about the interconnections between these various issues. And, and you know, the reality is, is many philosophers, when they, when they do their work, they um, they don't necessarily think about these interconnections. And, um, you know, for example, Jonathan Schaffer and his, his priority monism I remember asking him saying, um, well, you know, what sorts of entailments might there be for, you know, freedom on this view? And he's very explicit um, in in his his affirmation that, yeah, you do what you do in virtue of the cosmos being the way it is. Mm -hmm. So I don't see how there's any room for irreducible causal activity for what I do if that's if the ultimate explanation for why i do what i do is sort of grounded in something that i'm a part of or vice versa if if ultimately why i do what i do or at least what grounds uh my own action as an agent are my microphysical parts well then and why why not think that i'm just a puppet of my parts right right it's like pvi's uh consequence argument is running right through either down or up that's right that's right yeah you know jason turner trent merricks they've all sort of run uh similar style arguments that i unpack in chapter seven of the book um that i call the uh the tracking argument where i just say hey look um you know not only does determinism threaten um with certain kinds of uh, plausible closure principles free will right but also this bottom-up ontology does as well. And I would argue that a top-down, radically top-down sort of priority monistic ontology has the same exact consequence. So um, I come I come to these issues, Parker, with sort of a – I'm leaning into the, the phenomenology of these things and wanting to sort of take um, how things appear to me quite seriously in my method. I'm very Chisomian in this sense. Um, uh I, I want to account for the appearances as best as I can. And uh, it, it strikes me as, uh, I'll just say obvious, that I'm I'm an agent that can bring about irreducible or non-redundant um, causal effects in the world. I also think my being made in the image of God yeah. uh, partly means that um, not everything I do is going to be reductively explained in terms of what my, my smallest parts are doing. So, right. yeah. Right. yeah. Um, just, uh, uh, one last one for you as we close out here. Yeah. So that... that that strong unity. Um, okay, so so I want to talk about persons, but maybe it's easier to talk about a tree first. Uh, a tree is a living organism, and it's got the strong unity, and um, it's composed of it's a com- composite object, but it's a substance, right? A, a tree would be a substance on this view. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so then, when this tree, if I take an axe to the root or the trunk, and it dies, um, it's no longer a substance, right? Does it does does life confer the strong unity of the substance of the tree? I don't want to say uh, so. No, okay. Uh, precisely because I want to say there are non-living substances. Okay. So my own hesitancy. Um, oh, that's a good point. And I'm and I'm happy to I'm happy to talk further, honestly, Parker, about this. So uh, my own hesitancy with um, restricting the class of composite things to living things is it does just that it takes the sort of um principle of compositional unity to in some way be um uh, 
a notion of biological life yeah. or um or something similar right and i i want to just say again coming at these things methodologically um there seem to be composites that are scientifically serious in the sense of like a water molecule yeah. um, uh, or a quantum hole or quantum system. I know things get extremely weird at the quantum level, <laughs> um, but you know, a chemical hole yeah. um, or, or a biological system. I want to say, yes, there are some substances that are living, right? But mm -hmm. not all substances or even composites are going to be living. I want to say water is a composite object. It has various proper parts. Um, so uh, again, I'm going to, my methodological approach is I'm going to do what I can to try to preserve what strikes me as being in my own, that exists, right? I yeah. think water molecules exist, but they don't just exist. They're composed. I think if you told me that, um, yeah, I think it would be a, a massive oversight to leave out the parthood structure of a water molecule. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to say there is there is parthood or compositional structure there, but water molecules obviously are not uh, alive, nor are they uh, conscious, you know, sorry, panpsychism. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, um, yeah, I, I, I just want to try to as best I can to preserve what strikes me as intuitive or obvious in, in my ontology. Now I may be forced at the end of the day to kind of go that a limit of this route, but um, I think the substantial priority view can, can offset a lot of the worries with the, the main puzzles that lead people to eliminativism about composites or at least non-living composites. Um, and I think the substantial priority of you can um, can really go a long way to assuaging some of those worries without reducing or eliminating things in our ontology that seem very intuitive and that science seems to take cognizance of. Yeah. You know? Okay. So I think that probably has to do with um, maybe it's chapter one or chapter two where you're, you're talking about. Um, real essences and uh, or real definitions, and you're talking about essences, and it's a empirical thing. We need to use science to discover what these um, what. I don't know that you said this, but I'm going to try to summarize and see. Oh, I'm still here. Um, like we need to go out and discover what things are substances, and we might not just be able to do it all from our armchairs. Does that does that seem right? Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, there, there's there's two things here. So I actually think we can make quite a bit of progress a priori on the existence and identity conditions of substances. So this would be like, what are substances, right? Okay. What yeah. are the natures of substances? Now, it's, it's a further empirical question, I think, not exclusively empirical, but largely a question that we need to be consulting the empirical sciences, what substances exist, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, are there water molecules? Um, are, do they exist? Are they substances? Um, so I think the former, namely, what is the nature of a substance, I don't think um, is a is an a posteriori matter. I think that's an a priori matter. I think that's a there's a real role there for traditional metaphysical inquiry about what it, 
what are the existence identity conditions of the category of substance, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to involve fundamentality. It's going to involve a high degree of unity, so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, whether there are any of those that actually exist in the, in the, in the physical world, that that's, I think, largely a matter for empirical inquiry. So, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, that's about, yeah, go ahead. I think about, um, I think about, um, me. So I'm, I'm a person. And so that, so I'm fundamental, I'm a substance, but when I die and, and this is partially because I'm thinking of Aristotle and the, the severed hand and the, when the yeah. hand gets severed, it's no longer part of the substance and it's not even a hand. It's like a, a corpse hand. So when I become a corpse myself, is that still a substance or was it, when the life leaves that that's kind of what I'm, what I'm wrestling with. And that does the unity go, it seems like there's still strong unity. Um, but it, I don't, the person's not there anymore. So it seems like it wouldn't be a substance. I don't know. I don't know how to think about that. Yeah. These are great questions. Um, so I would just say Aristotle's, you know, classic homonymy principle where he says, you know, a severed hand is not a human hand it's only a human hand in name only, right? Mm -hmm. So we can call it a human hand until the cows come home, but what makes it human, right? Is, is the, the form or the formal component that actually confers identity, yeah. confers existence and identity on every one of the substances proper part. So that's why, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, if you see what I'm doing in the book is I'm trying to sort of unpack in contemporary analytic metaphysical sort of terms, the basis for Aristotle's homonymy principle that um, the formal component of a substance, right, is conferring, it actually places grounding constraints on each of its proper parts. So it confers the existence and identity on each of its proper parts. So if if a proper part ceases to be a proper part of that substance, right. As you, as you just pointed out, well, then it's, it literally ceases to be. Yeah. Um, now it looks a lot, shares a lot of qualitative features, right. At least uh, a, a newly severed human hand, right. Yeah. With a human hand. But remember for him, the nature and identity of something is, is conferred by that formal component. So it's strictly speaking sort of, speaking strictly in the ontology room, you might say it's not a human hand. It's not human, right? Yeah. It's a lump of flesh, mm -hmm. you might say. Um, so the afterlife stuff with the human person really, you know, this is, this raises a lot of interesting, um, interesting issues. I would just wonder, um, so yeah, there are, there are different ways to go here. I'll just say, um, I don't think you ever become a corpse. Okay. So, um, so I think at every moment of your existence, you are human. Mm -hmm. uh, corpses are not human. Yeah. So therefore you will never become or be identical to something that is a corpse because it's not human. So my own view sort of that I, I kind of vacillate on this, the issue of the afterlife, but, um, um, my own view is that you cease to be composed of matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in the, in the, uh, intermediate state, you're no longer material, 
although the, you are essentially the sort of thing that is naturally disposed to be material, so this is what sets you apart from, say, angels or angelic beings, um, it is part of your nature to be essentially disposed to be united to matter. Yeah. Um, and so that's what a human being is, is, is somebody that has a nature that is naturally disposed um, to be united to matter. And so when I'm uh, when I exist in a disembodied intermediate state, I'm still human, although I'm not currently united to matter. Now, I do exist. Uh, I do exist as a human being because I'm still the kind of thing that is naturally disposed to be. Yeah, the, the disposition is still there. Matter, absolutely. Yeah. But I'm I sort of I, I have one metaphysical part or constituent at this point, and it's my rational soul. On my own view, you're not identical to your rational soul. Um, but you forever have it as an essential uh, proper part or constituent. You don't have matter as an essential proper part or constituent, um, but you are the sort of thing or the type of being that is essentially disposed to be material. Yeah. Hence why there will be a bodily resurrection um, in the second coming. So do you, do you uh, say that we're, we're bodily souls? Do you use that language at all? That's not my view. Um, as far as I understand how that view is articulated, I don't identify the person with the soul. Okay. So um, I want to say that you are you are a substance that has a rational soul as a part or a metaphysical part or constituent. So yeah, at that's point in your existence, are you identical to your soul? Okay. You will forever have and essentially have your soul. You will never be without it. Um, but you are not it um, in the sense that a whole is not identical to one of its proper constituents. Yeah. So, That's so, you know, in your anti-mortem, you know, existence, like right now, your embodied existence, you are a substance that is, that is made up of or composed of a rational soul and prime matter or mm -hmm. some material element, however you want to make sense of that. Um, but upon death, uh, you cease to be made up of that material element, although you continue to be made up of that rational soul. Yeah. So the person, namely you, uh, you never cease to be in that sense. Um, yeah. Though you do lose um, your material constituent, which you are naturally disposed to be united to, in which you will be reunited to uh, eventually. So I don't know what to call that view, but... Uh, uh, it is, it's kind of where the view that I'm kind of currently, um, I'm currently inclined to adopt. So okay. on, on that view, you have a nature and you, you, you're not a nature though. You have one, but you're, you're not your nature, right? Um, well, it just it depends on what you mean by, you know, nature. Um, yeah. there are a lot of questions around that. Um, I will just say you are, you are the, you are the kind of thing that is essentially composed of a rational soul and is essentially disposed to be united to matter. Yeah. But you can exist without being united to matter. Does that mean matter is a separate, our material bodies a separable part of us? Um, yes, I think. Okay. I have to think more about that. Um, but so if you recall the sort of the view that I defend in the book is, mm -hmm. is the sort of no fundamental parthood constraint that Schaffer lays out 
I want I qualify it slightly and say if you if you if you tend towards a hylomorphic ontology of the human person, things like uh, form and matter or the rational soul and prime matter, these are not ordinary run-of-the-mill proper parts. Mm-hmm. Um, like say my cells would be or my hands would be or these sorts of things. These are more uh, fundamental and explaining or at least partially explaining um, the sort of thing I am, what kind of substance I am. So I try to leave room for um, not having the no fundamental parthood constraint apply to, if you think there are metaphysical parts or metaphysical constituents like form and matter Mm -hmm. um, and no fundamental parthood wouldn't apply to those because those aren't ordinary run of the mill integral parts or proper parts that I have within my purview yeah. um, within the, within the book. So. Okay, man, that's huge. This is, this has been so much fun. Uh, I seriously appreciate you going back. Um, like, like I always tell my, my audience when, when these guys are writing their dissertations and gals, uh, they're, they could learn something that day and put it in a footnote and then they might not have it in mind anymore. And then you give it a couple years. And so for, for uh, Dr. Edmund, for you to come back and rehearse, all this stuff from this book, it's been huge. I really appreciate it. And the, the audience is going to love it. I'm, I'm super stoked for, right. for this to get out there. Fun, man. Thank you so much for, uh, for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And it's been real fun talking to you. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So before we go, um, you have, um, you, this is like pure, just rich, uh, metaphysics. You also do really good analytic theology as well. We've, uh, you know, I read a lot of your stuff in our analytic theology classes at Ted's. Um, one, one of my favorites is, um, you are, you're pulling back, I forgot the terminology in the theology world, uh, retrieving. You're retrieving a doctrine of immensity from Turretin. And it's just awesome, man. I'm so stoked that you did that because that's been really influential for me as well. Um, if somebody wants to find more of your work, you, you got a, a website? You got somewhere where that's at? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I'll just say the, the Protestant scholastics, man, they had some serious metaphysical chops. Yeah, it's crazy. So if, if you want to see, I, I think, other than the medievals, if you want to see um, theology that's attuned to some serious metaphysics, you you should look no further than the Protestant scholastics. So mm-hmm. Turretin, uh, Petrus von Maastricht, yeah, John yeah. Owen, even I mean, some of these guys um, they they know they know their metaphysical stuff. So um, definitely check them out. Um, but yeah, I I mean I've got a website just rossinman.com, rossdinman.com, I think it is. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I've got some uh, some work on there, and um, yeah, I'm just um, I have deep interests in divine omnipresence, divine immensity. Um, but uh, I'm currently writing a an intro to metaphysics volume uh, that hopefully will be of use to kind of a first time uh, reader in metaphysics, uh, introducing some contemporary concepts in analytic metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And um, Paul Gould and I are uh, working on a um, a volume uh, uh, introduction to Christian philosophical theology together, um, and and that's you're you're a classical you identify as a classical theologian and um, and, and philosopher and uh, he is a uh, he calls himself neoclassical. Uh, it, it means a bunch of different stuff, but I'm excited for that because you guys are going to show us how to not be jerks to each other. Hopefully, <laughs> so that'll hopefully. be great. And, you know, Paul and I are really good friends, so that it should be you know it should just be an an organic outflow of just how we kind of relate to one another already. Totally. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, 
and then uh, yeah, so working on that, and then hopefully, I'm um, sort of fingers crossed. We have a vo volume that will be in the works. I don't know if this is a, a kind of a done deal yet, but it looks like it's going to be. But uh, a five views on Divine Simplicity volume. Oh, sweet. Um, so just getting some some um, some key thinkers in that area, just interacting with each other, uh, addressing some of the most important challenges to that doctrine, um, and then uh, a book called. Uh, um, the way, the wonder of it all, Christian philosophy is a way of life. So I'm, I'm chipping away at a volume that is basically trying to recapture uh, philosophy as a way of life in the Christian tradition. Uh, so more of a posture than uh, material content, but more of just a way of being in the world, yeah. um, the philosophical life. So yeah, those are just things I'm working on. But yeah, you can find all this stuff on um, on my website if you're interested. Um, and uh, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, man, man. Yeah, this is huge. And uh, for the listeners who like this, man, you can go and, and study with Dr. Inman, uh, master's or PhD at, uh, at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. So go and check that out. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. That's going to have to do it for now, folks. But uh, maybe we can have him back on and we can continue this conversation. Uh, that's going to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>